0: This is a Federal News Network podcast. If the IRS gets all of the money Congress promised it over the next 10 years, its enforcement powers will grow a lot. My next guest argues protections for taxpayers should also get a plus up. He urges Congress to pass a taxpayers' rights bill. Dean Zerby worked on the IRS restructuring committee in the late nineties. He's an attorney working for tax whistleblowers, and he joins me now. Mr. Zerby, good to have you on.
1: Thanks so much, Tom. Appreciate it.
0: In that nineties restructuring of the IRS, that came in the wake of reports of bad service, and so it was a long process. But the IRS divided it into the four pillars that it is made up of today, and that enforcement idea and how you do that correctly came up then so what do you see happening now
1: well I think you're right so they're they're gonna get a, a good amount of funding and uh, they've got that in hand and they're gonna be able to hire a number of uh, new folks, but I found that historically for the service to maintain public support, congressional support, you really want to balance. You want to say, yes, we have obviously have to have an enforcement presence, but making certain that you're providing good services, improving services for taxpayers, and at the same time protecting taxpayers' rights, that you're not just kind of grinding folks to grind. I think while people are comfortable with the idea of, hey, there's bad actors out there, let's go get them. For the folks that are in good faith trying to comply with the law, let's be respectful of their rights and and kind of color within the lines in terms of it.
0: The subtext here is there needs to be understanding that the tax code is so complex that it's nearly impossible not to violate it in some manner if you have any level of complication in your return, corporate, small business or personal. And so the administration of real justice requires that understanding.
1: I think that's right, Tom, right? The code is incredibly complicated. And what we found on the restriction Committee and from my time serving on the Finance Committee for Senator Grassley, that most folks really do want to comply, but they don't understand the code. It's not clear. Uh, it's not clear for it. So being able to get their phone, you know, to get their the phone call answer, to get their CPA to be able to get good guidance, that's really going to help a lot, a lot of people be complying with the law. Obviously, you've got to have an enforcement presence, but just providing good services and being respectful of taxpayers will really carry you a long, long ways. Most people, in fact, the vast majority of people voluntarily want to comply with their requirements under the tax code.
0: And you have written recently that there should be maybe a companion bill to the bill that gave the IRS all of this money. Where would that originate and what should be some of the provisions you feel it needs?
1: I think that's what right. You're right. So there's been some uh, bicameral legislation put out there on taxpayer rights, and taxpayer rights has had a long history of being a bipartisan provision. So I think they're going to have an end-of-year tax bill. I think that would be a natural fit. They may go on and do another tax bill early in the year, but I think it's something that both sides should should look at and realize that this is something that we can find common ground And I think for Republicans, it'll maybe address some of their concerns about the uh, IRS having overreach. For the Democrats, I think they can look at it and say this is a way to ensure that we're keeping the IRS's uh, feet on the ground and, and maintaining public support. So I think a good example out of the bat that would be out there is right now, if the IRS brings an action against a taxpayer and really doesn't have any grounds to do so, the taxpayer can recover his attorney fees or accounting fees for it. But it's very, very small and it's very limited. It's kind of a very small, limited benefit. And an easy one would just say, yes, let's make this more meaningful so that if a smaller or medium business owner is caught sideways – and with no grants from the IRS, that they can look at being compensated for their time and costs would be kind of an early example of of something that I think you could find common agreement on.
0: And as a former Hill staffer, now that you're seeing, as we speak, the Congress switching from sky blue, maybe to sky blue, pink, because it's certainly not totally blue, totally red at all. Do you think this has a good chance of happening in the next session or two? I
1: think it does. I think that's right. It's it's been very interesting to see the election results. And you're right. You naturally start to think, well, what can you get bipartisan support on? What can you get agreement on? And I think Taxpayer rights, taxpayer services, improving that, I think, is something that you can find uh, common ground and agreement on. I mean, you've always got to caution against overreach, but it's traditionally been bipartisan, and I think you you could get that through. And I think it would be very meaningful. I mean, I think there's a lot of reforms. One of the odd things about the taxpayer rights that are in the law already, for instance, is you have a, a right to go to court to protect them, but you're not allowed to do it anonymously. So you can think about it, Tom, that you're like, okay, the IRS did X, Y, and Z to me, but now I'm going to have to air all my laundry out in court. You know, do I really want to do this? So I think that's another example of a reform they can make uh, that would, is just common sense and they can get it. So I do think there's things they can do. You're right. And I think Congress is going to be looking for, okay, what can we do in this new world of, as you say, kind of pink or light blue, uh, what's
0: possible? And I think I think these are things that are possible. We're speaking with Dean Zerby. he's senior policy analyst at the National Whistleblower Center and a managing director of the Alliant Group. And let's talk about whistleblowers for a moment, because those have played a pretty big role in some of the celebrated cases where there's real dollars, corporate level dollars at stake. What should happen there? I mean, what's the status of it now and what do you think could do to improve the whistleblower situation?
1: Yes, that's right. So the whistleblower's right. I worked with them and, and good example is one of my clients, Brad Birkenfeld, he basically blew open the Swiss banks. I mean we we opened up Swiss banks thanks to that one whistleblower and they gave him a good award and, and they should because he benefited. But the whistleblower program, to the IRS's credit, they've really, I think, kind of it, it it lost the thread a bit, but they brought in new leadership, a new director, John Hinman, and I think they're really trying to make the program work. Uh, Commissioner Reddick's very uh, supportive of it too. Unfortunately, he's he's leaving now, but I think they're they're trying to get it back on track. And it's important, too, to support the whistleblower program because one of the concerns folks have with the number of new IRS agents is they will just kind of, you know, part of the expression, kind of have an agent in every pod is the concern. And the whistleblower program is very, very good, much better than the normal IRS uh, regime in terms of targeting the worst actors. So I think there's a pretty strong consensus that those folks who are knowingly, willfully evading tax that, you know, they should get a knock on the door. And the whistleblower program is extremely good at identifying those worst actors and getting the folks who are really up to mischief. And there is, a, again, a, a, an area where there's bipartisan support and bicameral support, uh, Grassy and Wyden in particular, uh, to do some things to strengthen that program even further. But yeah, the whistleblower program, it, it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's a real benefit for honest taxpayers because it basically directs the IRS's audit resources after the worst actors and leaves alone um, the, the, the folks that are trying to get right with the Lord. So my hope is that, uh, you know, they, they've had it. Uh, it's not really reached its full uh, possibilities, if you will. But I think that with um, the new uh, leadership coming in there, that uh, we'll see some real uh, expansion of that program to the benefit of everyone.
0: Is the typical whistleblower someone in a corporate setting that has knowledge, say, in accounting or finance, that type of thing, that right. sees what's it, going it, by and they're just expected to shut up and do it?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. Right. That's exactly When the IRS wakes up and thinks who do they most want to hear from that's exactly what they really want to hear is from informed knowledgeable insiders very common it'll be say the you know vice president of tax at a major entity right who's very knowledgeable particularly in tax they need someone who really understands what's going on and what's happening in the room and that makes kind of for their perfect person is, you know, a knowledgeable, informed insider with with the ability to walk the IRS through kind of an ongoing or recent tax evasion uh, that gets them sitting up um, and very interested in what's going on. So that's, that's who's very effective coming forward to the IRS.
0: And one other question I had for you, rightly or wrongly, correctly or incorrectly, in a couple of administrations now, the IRS has been Seen or charged by some as being used politically, and this, of course, is would be death to the entire integrity of the system if it came to pass in a widespread way. Should that be a priority for the next commissioner? I mean, commissioners are appointed by presidents, and yet you have an IRS that has to be fiercely and visibly independent of all politics.
1: I think that's a smart question, and, it, and it's right on. I mean, we were when I was working on the committee for Grassley, we you know we would hear these concerns and we took them very seriously because right the integrity of the IRS has just got to be as good as it can possibly be to give people confidence in the system. And, you know, they're not perfect and and, and things don't always go the, the way we want them to. That doesn't mean that uh, bad things are happening, but you've got to be vigilant. You've got to give people confidence. You've got to be transparent and open at the IRS. And it's also incumbent upon Congress, I think, you know, fairly, and balance to also be doing its oversight to make sure that things are, are are going right. I mean, the vast majority of the IRS folks are just trying to do their work are dedicated individuals, and are are trying to uh, you know advance the the important work of the IRS. But you're right. I mean, for the commissioner, it's it's just vitally important that they be seen as leading an agency that is above board. And doing the people's work, and without uh, favor or foul against anybody. And so you're right. I think I think the you know the current you know the outgoing commissioner has has done basically a fine job on that, and it'll be incumbent on the new commissioner to to similarly continue that going forward, and and give confidence to everybody. And part of that is taking seriously claims, in other words, even claims that we thought maybe were a little bit outside of. Uh, you know, the the norm, we still would follow down because we wanted to to give confidence to people that we would take it seriously, we look at it seriously and um and go through what they're doing. So, yes, I think that's going to be something that will be a, a challenge and an ongoing challenge for the IRS and the new commissioner.
0: Dean Zerbe is senior policy analyst at the National Whistleblower Center and the managing director of the Alliance Group. Thanks so much for joining me,
1: Don. Thanks so much. It was great to be with you today.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha's is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome.
3: Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like?
3: Sure, Absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service so it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that?
3: Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really... Sort of proud of, and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together. Because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through.
2: Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How is your leadership style? developed or changed over the years?
3: Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way, but then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with the Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, on the Metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues.
2: And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you.
3: Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say, sort of, deliver short, and then you can push them long. Right. So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas. As leaders, we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense.
2: Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started?
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right? To up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now, And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all.
2: Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers sayings. And I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation or helping to train them. Federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service?
3: You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career.
2: Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.
3: Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music.